Hello, and welcome to Talking Tax. I'm your host, Ryan Preet, and I'm happy to have you with us today. We've got a very exciting episode for you, as we will be discussing what state tax experts have called the tax case of the millennium. It's South Dakota versus Wayfair, which was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court on April 17th. The case seeks to undo the High Court's 1992 decision in Quill Corp versus North Dakota, which says states can't require online vendors to collect sales tax unless they have a physical presence in the state. A decision in the case is expected in June. Here to discuss the case and its implications is Harley Duncan, leader of the state and local tax group of the Washington National Tax Practice at KPMG LLP. Harley, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate the invitation. Awesome. So, you know, I know we have a lot to discuss today in limited time, uh, so let's get into it. I just wanted to lead off with a question of why now? Why is the court visiting this issue now? And what has really propelled justices to agree it's time to reconsider Quill's precedent? I think you have to, there's probably several parts to that answer, right? Or, I mean, there's several things that are driving um, the court forward here, it seems to me. And I think, first of all, it can't not recognize the explosion in, in electronic commerce, whether you want to call it internet sales, remote selling, whatever. Right, I think the Commerce Department statistics now say that it's something like 9% of overall retail sales. And it's sort of the way people, uh, certainly many people, uh, do their, uh, make their retail purchases. And just, just several years ago, that was like a two and a half, three percent figure. So it's really been a significant rise in electronic commerce. That then drives a revenue issue for the states. It drives concern about the vibrancy of Main Street business. It drives concerns about differential treatment of fixed-based retailers and, and, and remote sellers. And, and the states have really tried to address this, and, and states and significant parts of the retail community have really tried to address this over a number of years um, through congressional action, um, uh, negotiations, discussions, streamlined sales tax, and that's all at least come to naught, at least as far as producing an overall uh, uh, solution, an, an approach that, that fits across the country. So there's this frustration on the part of the states, which has led a number of states to pass laws like South Dakota's, right? Then I think that the last piece is that the court, the court recognizes that its physical presence rule from Quill really plays a role in this growth in electronic commerce, the strain on the states, or at least the view that the states have that there's a, this differential created by physical presence. Uh, the physical presence rule is really uh, not an appropriate one. And so there, you know, and Justice Kennedy had outlined it in the BMA case. Uh, perhaps it was wrongly decided. Is it time to revisit it? And I think that they're just kind of recognizing that you know this role, this rule, plays a significant role in this explosion of electronic commerce and this whole issue that's out there. And the question of, given the way that the states have acted with respect to the legislation they passed, um, uh, looking at it from a perspective of, isn't it time that we should take a look at it? Yeah, some really great points made there, and you know, especially with just the explosion of technology, technological advances, and really how how much we really do shop online, buy things online. 
versus 1992, where that was basically non-existent. Yeah, I mean, Quill was a mail-order seller. Um, at that time, they, they, the Quill case, it talks about there's a few floppy diskettes in the uh, state where, as I recall, you, of course, the big floppy diskettes, but it was, uh, uh, it actually was just the catalog. And uh, there wasn't, I'm not certain that there was an online communication back to uh, um, to Quill to actually place your order. I'm not sure that it wasn't just the uh, the catalog uh, online or in, uh, on this floppy diskette, um, and, it, and it's just changed dramatically, right? I mean, the, the way people do their shopping, how they consider it, they're going to obtain everything from specialty items to necessities, right? So, yeah, some, some really great points made there. Um, so yeah, moving into what was actually discussed in the oral arguments on April 17th, um, there were some pretty significant themes hit. Uh, one of them was not, you know, too much of a surprise, which was the role of Congress. Uh, you know, a couple justices, Kagan, Sotomayor, uh, we had Breyer really focusing on that. What did you think about the role of Congress as a focus during the arguments and can the Supreme Court really issue a ruling in this case without wading too far into a legislative pool? On the one hand, I was I was surprised that they they got into the role of Congress at least so immediately. Um, perhaps in, in the arguments, at least as I uh, reviewed the uh, reviewed the transcript. On the other hand, I mean we shouldn't be surprised, right? Uh, that that they went there because I mean, first of all, they said twenty five years ago in Quill that Congress could. Uh, um, address this area. There have been all the congressional uh, efforts, and when you think about, as you point out, what the court can say, it sort of cries out for Congress for, for a, a legislative solution, right? And I think, you know, the retailers and states that have supported um, uh, the, the, the South Dakota law saw that as well and, and made that point. But I guess. I was I was surprised, especially at the outset, because there was very little focus on the South Dakota statute itself. There really, uh, you know, there may have been a mention of some threshold that it contained, or 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 in the, in the discussion, but certainly wasn't dwelled on it. And as I'd sort of thought about it before, I thought, well, you know, yes, the co- the court, if they say that physical presence is no longer required, then then what did they say? And they have to deal with issues of burden and cost and compliance in some way. Uh, well, then they could go and say, but South Dakota addressed those through uh, 100,000 in sales, 200 transactions, uh, prospective application only, they were part of Streamline, and that they could get there that way. Well, clearly they didn't, they didn't go that down that path, right? They went right to, okay, if we say that physical presence is no longer required, then what is it that we can say? What's the threshold? And that's when they uh, um, brought up the role of Congress. And, I, and we really shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I can't be surprised about it because, I mean, you know, at its base, it is a policy issue, right? right, I mean, right. Uh, uh, and and, and that's, that's what Congress is suited for. And that's what the court had addressed 25 years ago, and and really was in addition to just you know uh, upholding the physical presence rule of Bellis Hess. This was the marked departure 
from Bell's Hess, which the, the clear delineation that it wasn't a due process issue, it was a Commerce Clause issue, and Congress can address it. So shouldn't have been surprised, but I, uh, I, I was. And, uh, and then they began to flounder, and I don't want to say the court floundered around, but then they began to prove, okay, if, if uh, we're not going to have physical presence, is there, is there a threshold? What's the threshold? And that's, I think, the solicitor's representative then said, well, that's one sale. And then you're in a situation, well, that's really pretty de minimis, and is that, is that a realistic standard? So I think then they began to say, well, isn't this something for Congress? Isn't this something for Congress? So, um, you know, I think that would have been their clear preference would have been if Congress had addressed it, but they mm-hmm. didn't. So if the court were to reverse Quill, how necessary would a national threshold be and if one wasn't put in place, would we see expedited congressional action to do so? Uh, is it also possible that if Quill was reversed, Congress could quickly act to reinstall it after a late June decision? It's certainly possible that, that Congress could act between now and the decision. I understand there's you know sort of renewed activity, and there has been um, through most of this calendar year, since especially since the court uh, uh, took the case to uh, to try to, to, to move uh, some some federal legislation um, the prospects for them doing that especially between now and June I wouldn't say were particularly high but I've been wrong before so uh, as far as action afterward um, if the if the court were to say physical presence is no longer required could could Congress uh, step in and, and really begin to do something like establish a threshold, reverse the decision. Uh, they certainly could, right? I mean, we've got to, and, and, and there's a lot of thought that that, you know, that the court perhaps shouldn't concern itself so much with the minimum threshold because they said physical presence is not required. The con- Congress, many people think would be likely they'd step in and say something, right? And say establish some threshold. That's, of course, the... Um, pattern that was followed back in 1959 with the the Northwest States Portland Cement case where the court interpreted law that granted states uh, uh, in a fashion that that gave states more authority over out-of-state sellers than people had originally thought. Within about seven weeks, the uh, Congress stepped in and passed Public Law 86-272 temporary statute passed in 1959 that's still there today. Uh, of course, and I know that you know there are some uh, pending federal proposals to basically undo Quill. We have uh, Representative Christy Nome, her uh, Remote Transactions Parity Act, which hasn't moved at all. We have Senator Mike Enzi from Wyoming, his Marketplace Fairness Act also hasn't moved. Um, do you think it's possible that Congress could actually get something done before a June decision, I think that's pretty problematic. But they, um, there is a there is a road that they could do it if if the will is there. Absolutely, and you know while we're on the the subject of the possibility of Quill's reversal, uh, you know another big topic is compliance costs, burdens faced by sellers. Um, what do you think about the debates over compliance burdens? You know, in the arguments on April seventeenth, we had huge gaps, huge estimate gaps in compliance uh, cost estimates. You know, one of them was $250 a month for 30 transactions. Another was $200,000 a year 
Uh, Justice Breyer was notably perplexed over these ranging estimates. Uh, what, what was your take on that? Yeah. Um, two, two thoughts there. One, it was really indicative of the way the court viewed the issue, right? They viewed it as a policy issue that they've been asked to address. And so they're going to think about it, and they're thinking about it in policy terms of what's the minimum threshold? What's the right threshold? What what can we say? How What should Congress do? And cost is one of those things that you factor in. The comparison of $12 per month to the 200 minute that was in one of the amici briefs for and in support of the state versus the 250,000, I think that may have been in the Wayfair that was causing Justice Breyer some frustration and consternation and sort of the difference between $12 representing the gas it takes to run your car, but the 250 being what it costs to build the luxury vehicle, right? right? right. And as I understand it, the, the $12, and it just really was apples and oranges or however whatever you want to use as an analogy to make comparison of two things that are not the same um, the, the $12 a month as I understand it is really sort of the fee that is charged to a seller that has some minimal number of transactions and what that fee would get you is a, uh, a determination of is the product taxable and at what rate should be applied. But there's a whole lot that goes into that and getting to that point. And that's where the $250,000 figure, I think, comes in. And that's, I think, probably trying to represent what it would take a retailer to uh, be able to take advantage and use a tax determination engine and pay perhaps the $12 monthly fee. And that's you run into a host of things there, right? I mean, you got to map your catalog to that tax determination system, get it to integrate with your uh, accounting systems, with all your point-of-sale systems. So there are a whole lot of costs that go into it. So um, that I think the point that, that I, I certainly appreciate Justice Breyer's uh, frustration because there's really not a whole lot of very good data on compliance costs uh, and it can vary so much from company to company or seller to seller, right? Depending on what they do now, their sales channels, the size, what they're trying to integrate with and the like. So that um, you know, I, I could understand the frustration. I do think there were a couple of other points, though, made about the costs and, and that were really interesting. And, 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 and Justice Gorsuch, I suppose not surprisingly, given that he was on the 10th Circuit when they handled the Direct Marketing Association v. Brohl case, um, both on the procedural matter and then on the merits, uh, said, look, the, the judgment is, the, the comparison really shouldn't be costs of collecting versus not collecting. It is should be costs of collecting versus if we were to maintain a physical presence rule and states continue to adopt these notice and reporting requirements, such as were at issue in the direct marketing case, what's what's that cost compared to collecting? And that that's the appropriate comparison. And that delta is probably smaller than it is between not collecting at zero 
and collecting at, at something greater than that. Uh, the, the Justice Ginsburg also made a, a, a point that on, on costs that was, was, was pretty relevant. And that is that, yes, there, are, there would be costs imposed on remote sellers to comply with sale, sales taxes, but that cost is already imposed on fixed-based retailers. Right? And they've got to force, face those costs, whether they're a small retailer or if they're a large retailer collecting in any number of states. And, and that the, the cost of complying with sales tax is not small. It is, it is a complex tax, and it takes a lot to collect and report. And that she, she pointed out, you know, fixed-base retailers or those with a physical presence are already facing now. So when you think about does physical presence make sense in a digital world, maybe that's a comparison of it doesn't make sense to have some group facing them and another group not just because of this physical presence rule and it may not uh, be that significant from uh, in, in the digital world when in terms of to whom you can sell and your ability to sell. Right, and you know, I, I know we're running out of time, but um, you know, we're in kind of a little bit of a gap now uh, before an expected June decision. Companies have probably read the transcript from the oral arguments and are really asking, well, what should we do now? Uh, between now and late June, when again, a decision is expected in this case. Uh, what steps should companies be taking in this gap period? And what would you recommend that they, they go out and do? The way I view it is it, it still makes sense for companies to be looking at this issue as what lays ahead for me in this post-Quill world or post-Wayfair world. And I think that it makes sense for them to still think in terms of what would I need to do if the court did away with the physical presence rule. Um, and, and when you think about that, I think the things that I'd, I'd focus on if I were a seller, would be, okay, where do I collect now and where might I have to collect? And then I try to figure out where I might have to collect. I'd look at, say, something like look at the South Dakota law and what would that tell me? The next thing I think I'd be thinking about is, okay, what do I know? How comfortable am I with I could determine what, whether what I sell is taxable in those jurisdictions and what might it take to get that work done. Third thing I do is figure out what technology platform I use now for any sales tax compliance and, and uh, accounting that I do. And if I needed to begin collecting, or what are my options out there? What might my technology platform look like? I then also think about, well, how am I gonna be filing these returns? And then the last thing I would think about, and this is where I would make engage in some really serious conversations with other people in my business, in, is what are the other parts of the organization that would be affected if all of a sudden we've got to begin collecting in a large number of states? You know, it's going to affect contracts, it affects technology, it affects marketing, it affects legal. So I think those are the types of things that I'd be uh, thinking about exploring options, and I would be actively engaging in discussions with the rest of the business so that if, in fact, it, they were to come down in June and say you need to begin collecting at some point in some number of states, 
or that gets determined in some fashion that you are somewhat ahead of the curve. Um, I think even if you think, well, the arguments went such that you can't see the court making their way to overturning or significantly modifying Quill, I think seller would be pretty well advised to look at what states have been doing, whether it's the use tax notice and reporting, the marketplace uh, uh, obligations they've been trying to place on uh, people who sell through marketplaces or on the marketplace themselves uh, and begin to say, okay, if that, even if I don't have to collect and that activity keeps up, what's that mean for me and what what am I going to have to do to comply with those? Wow, some some really, really important questions that themes hit on today. Um, again, you know, South Dakota versus Wayfair, it's a topic that we're going to be unpacking and addressing for, for months. Um, again, the decision is, is expected in late June, and I, I know this is a monumental digital tax case. It affects the state local tax areas, and, and everybody in the state and local tax community this has been in their limelight. So again, Harley, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, this was Harley Duncan, leader of the state and local tax group of the Washington National Tax Practice at KPMG LLP. Really appreciate you coming over to Crystal City again to uh, chat with us about this. Thanks, Ryan. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please subscribe to Talking Tax at soundcloud.com or iTunes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm your host, Ryan Preet, signing off from Crystal City.